I just had a conversation with Joanna Bryson at the University of Cambridge, where we are at the same conference called Varieties of Mind, uh, organized by Center for the Future of Intelligence uh, here at Cambridge. Uh, I really love this episode. I didn't get to ask too many questions, but I think that uh, definitely Joanna gave some amazing answers and some super, super useful perspectives on you know, the common misconceptions of artificial intelligence, the current commercial climate of using the term artificial intelligence. She talked about data protection. Uh, we talked about the role of Europe uh, in the global AI landscape. You know, I asked her a question about the US really dominating the AI field and kind of China and then Europe is a bit left out. Uh, and then she gave some amazing insights on that. Just talked about her career and uh, where we should take artificial intelligence and where we should take ethics. Joanna works at the University of Bath and also Princeton, I believe. Uh, she's the undisputed thought leader in artificial intelligence, ethics, AI policy and things of that nature. Uh, super, super renowned expert and I'm immensely grateful that she agreed to do this podcast with me. That turned out really good. I hope that you guys enjoy this podcast with Joanna Bryson. Please let me know your thoughts. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Max Talks AI. Today, I'm joined by Joanna Bryson. Hi, Joanna. Hi. Why don't we start with a kind of laying out for the audience listening the picture of where we are recording and what event we're attending together? Okay. Oh, you want me to talk about it? Yeah. Uh, right. Okay. Uh, well, we're attending a meeting called Varieties of Mind, which is put on by the uh, Future of Intelligence, the Center for the Future of Intelligence at Cambridge which of all the people that have somehow gotten tens of millions of pounds to uh, somehow defend us from artificial intelligence, I think theirs is the highest quality. They tend to have really uh, very good talks, I suppose partly because they're very much grounded in really serious Cambridge philosophy. And how, how has your experience been so far at the conference? Your favorite topics or oh. favorite talks? My talk. Yeah, no, there's, there was a lot of really good talks. Yeah, I, um, I mean, there's... It's like any meeting, I don't know. There's, but, but yeah, no, there's some really great ones. I guess I'm most excited when, uh, when you hear someone really doing a good job with philosophy um, that, and you remember what it's about, you know. So there's, in, in AI, you often get people who, uh, I don't know, aren't actually philosophers uh, but are talking about stuff without data and then call it philosophy, like me. <laughs> so it's when you hear someone that's really properly trained and put together a really complicated and can see and gives you better insight into things. I'm also really bad with names, so I am p imagining a couple of the talks, but I can't remember who yeah. they are. <laughs> I'm guessing, as for me, I wasn't really expecting as much reference to animal intelligence and animal consciousness. And oh, well, this is something that I really, they say next time it's going to be more about AI minds. I'm like, what does that even mean? So I guess one of the things I really liked on the first day was that um, we got somewhere about talking about what do we even mean by mind. You know, I think there's a real problem that people are just assuming that there's some kind of metaphor from what we use to talk about minds with humans to something that has to be a core of an artificial intelligence system. And, uh, and that's a really crazy assumption. And so I was, you know, for, for these philosophers who don't, don't necessarily know much about you know, natural intelligence, uh, to decide before they'd had the meeting that next year they should focus more on AI. You're just thinking, what? Like, why don't you go and have the meeting and see if you learn anything and then decide whether you really want to call AI a kind of mind? Mm -hmm. I, I don't think that it's... 
There's so much of artificial intelligence that doesn't even occur to us to think of as a mind, like uh, Google search, right? And actually, if you want to think of Google as a company, as a kind of, a, a, of a, an AI with a mind, there's been a lot of people that have proposed that, that, that corporations are a good model uh, for, for you know, what artificial intelligence is. There's this really bizarre belief that artificial intelligence is like some kind of species or something. It's not a species. Mm -hmm. It's a set of software engineering techniques, right? So there's, not, there's no core motive force in artificial intelligence except for us. That's what the A is. It's an artifact. So we set up organizations and then we enhance ourselves and we enhance our organizations with all kinds of information technology. A lot of the changes that are happening now are not just about AI, they're just about communication. The fact that we have mobile phones, the fact that we have you know, incredible amounts of data of everybody from their mobile phones. And that's kind of AI because you're perceiving and you're searching and you're consolidating, you're finding regularities and you're using machines to do that. But, um, but a lot of it is just the fact that we can communicate to each other more effectively. You know, there, there's been a massive drop. There's a big problem right now, which is the increase of inequality in the OECD. But globally, there's been a massive drop of, of, of inequality and also of extreme poverty. And a lot of that is about the fact that people can have telephones. So they can find out what, what is a fair price for their, what they're making mm -hmm. and uh, what they should be growing and, you know, things like that. Just basic communicative acts that let more people be plugged into, you know, the, the knowledge that our, that our cultures are producing. So that's changing the world. And, and the thing is that intelligence, whether it's artificial or natural, it's doing computation. So if we get intelligence from other people, that's great. You know? I'm, I'm kind of seeing from, you know, from some of your talks and from the way you interact, I don't think you're a big fan of uh, not just entrepreneurialization of AI, yeah. but also of uh, kind of the impact that I think science fiction pop culture had on the way we perceive artificial intelligence and obviously media reporting yeah. has always an angle of getting the most clicks so that they would not think about whether to use a mind or whether to use consciousness or whether to use yeah yeah so now there's this there's this big problem which is that um you know i was taught you know in whatever in junior high about science fiction that that it's about it's always about the present and you can get um, margaret atwood says that too she says i'm not a prophetess i was writing about the present when i wrote handmaid's tale she was writing about iran now now you know there is actually more of a danger of that happening in the united states which is how she postulated her book in the first place um and and yeah if i was going to pitch something i'd say go watch handmaid's tale it's amazing <laughs> but it's uh the point is that um Part of that writing about the present is writing about the human condition. And the interesting thing about AI and fantasy is to do that by imagining things that aren't quite human. And so when you get people to say, but data, don't you want to build data? It's like you do realize that data and Spock are the same character. They're doing the same work. Mm -hmm. And you know, one's an alien and one's a robot, but, the, but basically they're even both having you know, this, this uh, sort of somewhat emotionally impoverished you know, <laughs> kind of thing going on. But, but, the, but the, the main thing is, is that really what it is uh, to be a human? And so you have, um, you know, in the, in the, in the first uh, season, uh, the, the, the emotions, instead of being Dr. McCoy, is, uh, what was her name? The, the, the woman that was empathic and could feel other people's feelings mm -hmm. and whatever. Mm -hmm. Troy, that was her name, right? So, so they made the opposites, they went more extreme, that they had a woman and a robot, whereas before they'd had like a male alien and a male human that were yeah. the emotions and the reason. 
but still examining like what do you need how do you take this how do you explore the universe what you know what existentially what what are we here for um by taking out these sort of these these sort of angels the good the angel and the devil or whatever these two sides of of uh the the ego and the id you know exploding from the captains that are making the real decisions mm -hmm. then if we could uh, debunk some notions and i know that you have uh, done it before Uh, in in other interviews, but I think that the, the listeners would immensely benefit from you actually breaking down what is machine learning, what is deep learning, and uh, what is artificial intelligence, in okay. your opinion, well, okay. educated so, opinion. Right. <laughs> it's important to understand that it's not worth fighting over how a word is used. So I'm not going to say this is the right way to use these terms. Mm -hmm. But I will say that it is an educated way, one of many educated ways of using the terms, and it's how I tend to use the terms. Although everyone makes mistakes, right? But a very clean understanding of intelligence that separates it from a lot of other pieces, so we can have discussions about that, is that intelligence is just doing the right thing at the right time, right? And we sometimes uh, extend from that to say, in response to uh, environmental change. That way we don't say, oh, the chair is doing the right thing or the rock is doing the right thing because mm -hmm. it never changes what it's doing, right? So um, why would you want such a simple reductionist kind of de description? Because you want to say something like, well, how important is intelligence to being, for example, a moral agent, something that's responsible for its action? Or is intelligence all there is to cognition? Is, you know, what, what, you know, and now again, now cognition, the, the definition I just gave you of, of intelligence is pretty much what you get from behavioral ecology. It's definitely exactly what you get out of Patrick Winston, who used to be the mm -hmm. textbook in AI. Um, but there isn't such an agreed definition. Everybody uses something different for cognition. But when I talk about cognition, I talk about one step up from intelligence in that um, the definition I gave allowed you to say that a plant is intelligent because it, it can sense light and it can grow towards the light. You know, trees drop their branches. They, they just say, okay, there's no light over there anymore, right? Isn't so that, they even have memory. Isn't there something like this with rocks too? I no, because, well, I mean, I guess you could say that they, they wear away. So some people talk about rocks having memory because you can see where they've been or something like that. But um, I, it doesn't sense and then act in response to that. So it's not, it's not actually doing something as a consequence. So there's a two-wayness about, about life. Um, so anyway, that's life and then also uh, uh, thermostats. So I'm on the Marvin Minsky side of saying that the simplest AI is, for example, a regulator on a, on a, on a mill, which is not even a CPU, right? It's just something that that's mechanically helps keep the, the mill going the right speed. Or a thermostat, you could make a thermostat just out of a coiled spring, that's how we used to do it. You know, a coiled spring and a magnet, and then that would turn on or off depending on how cold or hot the room was, right? Mm -hmm. And that's like really, really basic intelligence. Now, so I would call those intelligent, but I wouldn't call them cognitive because they can't learn how to learn. So they can't uh, learn ways to create new representations. And that's one of the things that we get really excited about with, you know, with humans that, oh, they, they develop and their representations change over time and they're able to do more things when they're older than when they're younger. Um, and then you have these big questions like we had today about like, well, can bees do the same thing? Mm -hmm. and, and are bees cognitive? And there, there's some pretty good arguments that bees are cognitive. So um, anyway, the, the, uh, so you asked me about machine learning. Um, some people, I hate this, you know, that, but some people who are trying to sell what they do 
say, oh, well, in the old days, AI was something we programmed, but now AI programs itself. No, <laughs> nothing programs itself. There's no algorithm that you imagine and then suddenly you spontaneously get a program, right? Or a robot or something. What you have to do is, well, okay, one way to think of it is that machine learning is one of the tools that we use to build AI. And first we have to choose the algorithm. We have to supply a lot of power, a bunch of time, and a bunch of data. And then we choose which data we put into it. Sometimes people talk about supervised versus unsupervised learning. But even there, I think that's a bit, uh, it, it's, a, it's always about how much supervision do you give. So do you actually say, like, here's a label for every, for every single piece of data, here's a, here's a label? Or do you just sort of reinforce the whole system for finding regularities, you know, for being able to detect that something is, you know. Though at some level, you don't have a learning system if you don't have a means to tell that you're wrong and a means to update yourself based on the information that you're wrong, right? So, so there's always, every learning system has those components. It has a representation that you're storing um, the information as you get it, and then you have a way, and then you use that, if you have an actually intelligent system. So by this definition, you could have machine learning without intelligence if the system doesn't do anything with it, if you're just sort of recording it. Um, but generally speaking, if you're talking about anything that has agency, then you, you, uh, you have this representation that not only do you store, store experience in, but also that you use to predict what the right action is. And then if that action turns out not to be right, then you uh, need to update the representation somehow. And so those are the pieces every machine learning system needs. And so we build them and we're the ones who provide those pieces, right? And so that's why I'm saying even that um, even for a machine learned system, there's still human responsibility for it, even yeah. though we don't micromanage all the details. Um, then finally, deep learning is just, it's just one special form. It's, it's, although there's a great story behind deep learning. That, so deep learning, the, one of the most essential things about it is that you have multiple layers to the neural network. Mm -hmm. And the problem was when I was a grad student in the 90s, um, someone had already proved that you don't, you know, mathematically proved, formally proved, that you never really need to have more than one middle layer, right? Everything you could do with however many layers you have, you could do with a single middle layer, you know, in theory. And so when I was a PhD student, you couldn't do anything that had been formally proved to be silly, right? And, and so they, but people like me, I came from psychology, I didn't come from computer science or math, so I didn't care about proofs that much. I mean, obviously you take on board, if someone tells you it's impossible to do something, they think, well, probably it is. But, but, um, but what, the, what those guys neglected was that, okay, yeah, you could in theory do it, but you're much more likely to get successful learning if you actually had these, not only different layers in between, multiple layers, but depending on the size of those layers. They, they turned out to be more likely, the bottlenecks in the learning were more likely to discover certain kinds of information. So, mm -hmm. so it really matters. And, and that's, uh, here's another great uh, funny thing about this is that um, DeepMind was, uh, of course, famously bought from Google for this huge amount of money. And uh, they, they <laughs> And they said, we're going to solve you know, artificial general intelligence. We're going to solve, you know, that's what we're doing. We're, we're, we're able to learn you know, any, any Atari game or whatever. Mm -hmm. and, but the whole reason that you would spend whatever that was, I, you, know, le, you know, legend has it, 400 million pounds. I don't know how accurate that number is. Mm -hmm. um, 
But the, anyway, they, they got a lot of money, and it was because those guys are so good. You know? And the reason you need people who are really good is because there is no systemic way, or you just program it, right? Yeah. So it was the irony of, of having a bunch of people being paid so much money because they were individually such superstars, and then to say that, oh, we're doing general intelligence, it's just really funny. Mm-hmm. Just wondering, actually, just picking up on that, do you know how to play Go? I actually have never played Go. I've played like Othello, oh, <laughs> which is like the kind of lame, made for America version. <laughs> have you seen the documentary? Did you get um, no, I haven't seen that yet. No. It's very, I think cinematically it's, it's a very, very cool one. Oh, cool. So, um, I do play chess. <laughs> you do play chess. I play not, chess. Not well. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I was really good for like a six-year-old girl, but I never really studied that much more. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 even in junior high I was playing on the team level. Because you, yeah. you grew up in America, right? Yeah, I did, yeah. So that for me, um, also I grew up in not quite Soviet Ukraine, but post-Soviet Ukraine, yeah. so chess was still a huge thing that yeah. you have to yeah. be good at. I, I remember watching Bobby Fischer. <laughs> did you, were you, you were, I mean, of course you were already in the field when uh, Kasparov got defeated. By, um, oh yeah, that was a of, big deal. It was a huge deal. And also for IBM, such an amazing move, actually yeah. speaking. Well, it was, it was funny because um, the, I was in Edinburgh, I think at the time, and, and, or maybe I'd been, I was going back and forth between MIT and Edinburgh, but I remember I got to Edinburgh, so yeah, I must have been at MIT. Anyway, I got to Edinburgh, people were saying, you know, the phone's been ringing. People weren't taking AI seriously. And the same thing, it wasn't with Go, it was with, when DeepMind got sold. I actually had the editor, the technology editor of The Guardian, phone me up at my desk and talk to me for two hours. And I wasn't, I'm more well-known now than I was then. You know, I, so I don't know who told him to call me or if he just Googled everybody that came up with Artificial Intelligence UK or what happened. Mm-hmm. But he's like, we thought AI was a joke, but 400 million pounds is no joke. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So people... Um, I, again, I think it's this over-identification that, that if they look at it and they think, oh, that's not AI. It's not, it's not like me, so it's not intelligent. Mm-hmm. And that's this identification that, oh, we're intelligent, you know, that that's what makes us different from the apes or whatever. I mean, that's one of the cool things about this meeting is that we've seen how intelligent all these other species are. And we're going to see that tonight with Peter Godfrey Smith. That'll be quite cool, too. I'm looking mm-hmm. forward to that. Um, but... That, so then I, I saw both at MIT and at Edinburgh, which are two of the best places you could learn, study AI at the time. I saw um, you know, people walk into the AI class and they're super excited. I'm going to learn AI, you know, and it's like famous people, whatever. And then they walk out at the end of the semester going, that's not AI. And I had completely a different experience. And I think that's because I already had a psychology degree. And so, in fact, I didn't just have psychology. It was at Chicago. It was called behavioral science. And at that time, now it's business. But, but at that time, behavioral science was stuff like neurobiology of behavior and developmental neuropsychology. So there, it was focused on how did it really work. Or you could focus anyway. You could choose those courses. Mm-hmm. And so I saw that what they were doing explained a whole lot of the open questions and like neuroscience and psychology and, and developmental neuroscience and whatever, you know, that that we had at least in the 80s. I, I started uh, learning AI in, in like, oh yeah, only about five years later. I, I, I guess I took five years out and then went back to grad school. Mm-hmm. So, so I knew that that was really AI. I mean, that was really intelligence yeah. because I knew enough about intelligence. And so now when I teach my undergraduates at Bath, I actually have this course called Intelligent Control and Cognitive Systems. And every other lecture is about natural intelligence so that they can believe that what I'm teaching them about AI is relevant, you know? And they also get to program like robots and um, um, social simulations so they can understand the social component of intelligence and, the, and then first-person shooters. 
which actually used to be this huge problem because we couldn't, they, you know, they, they were learning all this other stuff. The robots force you to realize you're wrong. You, you think you know how it works, but, but you go, oh my goodness, it's unbelievably hard to, to turn sensing into action. You know, it's just incredible what we've evolved to be able to do. And the, um, and, but then they get to the first person shooters and they suddenly think, oh, I know this. And they, like, everything you've been teaching them for the semester goes out the window. Right. So we're working really hard to, to overcome that and say, um, listen, we're not teaching you how to program AI, game AI so that you could go get a job in a game company. We're trying to get you to think about how humans balance multiple conflicting goals. Now, in fact, the, the, the system that we teach them, it's, it's the action selection I had in my PhD, but it actually does underlie um, one of the dominant ways that people do complicated game characters called behavior trees. So, so what they're learning is actually relevant to game AI, but we stopped telling them that. Because <laughs> so we were saying, like, just think of this as a hard coursework that people have trouble with, okay? Please, please focus and stop thinking it's a computer game. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. No, I think, uh, yeah, I think also for, you know, also from my kind of layman's perspective, AI really hit the news a lot a few times and most of them really were you know games or something you can relate to something you grew up with and yeah. then it's it's then so easy for you to kind of relate to artificial intelligence and start identifying it and think well, people uh people say to me now that how did you know to get an ai before it was cool i'm like what are you talking about what could be more cool than ai it's always been cool I mean, that was just a very strange question but it is very weird right now because you do get this huge number of people who only do the cool thing flooding into the space and you're just like yeah who are you guys where did you come from and you have like you know 10 million twitter followers but i've never seen a paper by you i've never heard of you like you know it's really weird can, can you then can we dig into this a bit because i kind of want to connect it to so there is the commercial value of a term artificial intelligence and i, I come from legal background and I, I worked in intellectual property law and i'm just seeing the way law firms are, are using the term to kind of to show that they are you know kind of on the edge of progress and they are top-notch and all stuff stuff like that so that do you think we should um, think of an of an ethical discussion behind a business using artificial intelligence because i remember uh several years ago big data was a huge thing so then everyone was talking about big data and then uh, i think i'm looking at the same thing but now it's not big data but everyone now calls it artificial intelligence well, do you think it's a problem or is it still good for the field in general to get the pr that it gets I, th I think there's a big problem with labels, um, and, and I don't think there's much we can do about that. You know, branding kind of happens. The main thing that we need to do, I think, is, is ensure that we're, we're talking with the regulators and we're making sense with them. So if we can communicate a set of terminology about what you're accountable for and what a company is accountable for, and if we can get that through, then that's the most important thing. And then when, um, then if a law firm or a medicine firm or anything realizes that there's certain kinds of liabilities associated with intelligent systems, then they're gonna be careful mm -hmm. about how they mm -hmm. use the terminology. But I don't, I don't think there's a way we can really control um, you know, hype and memes and stuff like that, uh, yeah. not, not easily. But I do think the most important thing is, is rooting this all. And I think that that was, wasn't happening for a while, but I think it's actually been very encouraging to see how you know, the community has come up and fought against some you know, people with huge amounts of money and influence 
that we're trying to throw up smoke screens. And I don't even know the extent to which, I mean, I don't know these people, and even if I did, I don't know if I could penetrate like through their incredible showmanship. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I can't tell the extent to which they actually believe this stuff because they're living in this non-linear, like, unbelievably powerful situation. I think sometimes when I read about people actually believing the simulation hypothesis, that this is like the divine right of kings, you know, that, that people, mm-hmm. people thought, when you, when you have so much power that, that you're so far off the narrative that you start believing bizarre supernatural things, right? <laughs> but the, um, so I don't know if they actually believe it. I suspect that there's an awful lot of um, going around trying to make sure that, uh, that uh, you're not responsible or try to, to the maximum extent possible to evade regulation. And what I try to communicate when I talk to people from the tech industry is that um, you don't want to evade regulation. I mean, most regulation in, in biological terms is upregulation. Mostly the governments are doing massive investment to make sure these companies do well. But the reason we have government is to make sure that you know, society is stable, that people who create goods get rewarded for those creations. At least they have a more likelihood of getting rewarded than the people who try to steal them. Yeah. You know? So that's what government is for. And it's in all of our interests to make sure that, you know, that governments have enough uh, power that they can help us keep a coherent and fair society, and also that there's enough redistribution out to everybody else, all the people that, that are living and, and working with us in our society so that they don't have to turn to crime, and so that they don't feel like you know, angry and, and start doing violent things, and so that they can actually spend money on stuff, right? Uh, I, I, I've started realizing that, you know, we, I think we're overly obsessed with money, and, and part of that comes from um, thinking about what's really going on with these free services. So, you know, Facebook is free and Google is free. What does that really mean? I don't think it's free at all. I think, and I don't think that they're selling us. That's the, that was the easy answer. It was cute. But I think it's bartering. I think that we're bartering data. So we're willing to get, we don't even know what data we're giving up, to be honest. But, but even if we were signing up and saying, yes, you can have this and that and the other, we're getting more aware of what data we're giving. Um, we're willing to give that in, in exchange for, oh, now I know how long it takes to get from here to London and I can stay here the exact right amount of time because basically Google Maps is gonna give me that, you know, or, or that um, the, the relationship I'm able to maintain with my family with minimal investment because we're all on Facebook together. You know, mm-hmm. those kinds of things are things that we're doing this bartering. Mm-hmm. And the thing is that at the time of the barter, so first of all, it's non-denominated, we call it free, and uh, so nobody taxes it because there's no income. But secondly, at the time of the barter, those guys are basically speculating. They have no idea what the state is worth. But then 10 years later, they suddenly think, oh my goodness, look, we can figure out you know, how, how to manipulate voters or something, right? And, and then you're like, now I see what the value of the state is. So I don't think we can do things based on um, taxing at income anymore. I think we have to look at things like taxing at uh, wealth, at, like the increase in market cap. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we have to figure out how to fairly des- you know, distribute that taxation. But who's going to do that? Who's the enforcer? If, you, know, you have like, you know, this company that's like one of the, the biggest market cap companies in the entire world, and it claims that it's living in the Canary Islands you know, or something. <laughs> so there has yeah. to be enforcement. And that's, I think, what the European Union is very good for. Because if you want access to the world's largest economy, which is the Eurozone, let alone you know, Britain and, and, well, for a while, Britain at least, 
and various other uh, non-euro economies, then you have to meet their rules. And so I think they can be uh, instrumental. And there's a lot of other people who see the utility of this, like Japan, um, Africa. You know? mm -hmm. There's a lot of other countries who see the utility of saying, let's figure out a better way to um, handle these problems and, and to distribute the wealth that's being created. So mm -hmm. not entirely. Of course you want the people who made the wealth to get, have reward for doing that because you want them to keep doing their good job. But you need at least enough to go into the infrastructure so that, as I said, we can have a stable world, you know, so that we don't have people rioting and we don't, and we don't, and, and so that, I mean, the tech is such a natural uh, ally for, for any kind of humanist perspective because they need those, those one in a billion peop, you know, people that are amazing programmers. They need to find those people. They need them to be well-nourished and well-educated and be able to move across the border. Mm -hmm. So there are natural allies for all of us who have sort of a liberal humanist perspective on that, that individual lives matter and it doesn't matter where you're born, you still matter, right? Uh -huh. So I think, um, I think I've probably gone on quite a while longer than you expected from that first question. Do you, do you no, that's, that's, that's all right. No, um, actually, this, this was, you kind of answered the question that I was going to ask because I read that you, you said somewhere in one of your interviews that you like the way artificial intelligence is done in Europe more so than it is done in the U.S., uh, yet, if you think of sort of the global playing field, um, yeah. there is the US and then there is China. The US has an approach of opening up, you know, the markets and letting the corporates do their thing. And China has the approach of, you know, the government is just going to lead the way and then it's going to give subsidies and grants to to organizations that are going to do, they're going to play by the government's rules. Would you, what do you think of that? kind of dichotomy or like the binary view of how to do AI and where, where is Europe's place in, in the conversation? Yeah, it's a really good question and I've been thinking about that a lot so I might feel differently by the time you release this than I do now but I'll tell you my current guess. Right. Um, I, I, first of all, I don't think America and China are as different as you say. As I mentioned, mm -hmm. there is massive investment, especially in California. That, I mean, there, uh, Joan Didion wrote a book about where I come from or something like that about California and the amount of money that was put into bootstrapping that kind of, uh, that kind of business ecosystem. So, so, um, so in some ways, uh, the, the main difference is that, that China set up the Great Firewall and that allowed their tech companies uh, a, a sort of a range to compete and then um, and so now they have all this big tech piling up where there is a government to do that redistribution. So redistribution normally happens by governments. That's almost the definition of government that you you know you kind of take resources from a bunch of people somehow and then you build a wall and you defend them. So that's almost like what government is basically about if nothing else creating security. And then you can think about all the other social well-being as a form of, of security because you have you know, better, happier citizens, <laughs> you know, whatever, that's a kind of security. So you could say that's all there is to government. So the point is that now that we have these transnational companies, we have a problem with the redistribution of everything that's not happening <laughs> inside of China, right? But you're right that there's this, I, I'm not saying they're exactly equivalent, there is this incredibly um, uh, frightening autocratic stuff happening in, in China right now um, and what they're doing against the Uyghurs. I saw, the, I saw your tweet, I was just reading The Economist, that article about Xinjiang. Yeah, and yeah, and they've got, I mean, you know, it's terrible, like 33 people got stabbed, that's terrible, but it's nothing like September 11th, it's nothing like what happened in Spain or what happened in London or you know the the um, I guess it's approaching because some of those things are hundreds of people dead instead of thousands but but the point is that um, 
we gave up part of our liberal, de liberal democracy or whatever. We're like now we have to take our shoes off. If you're in America, you still take your shoes off for no reason in the airport to make people feel safer, right? Mm -hmm. but, but we were only willing to go so far. And, and China is saying, yeah, just no, we, we can micromanage this. And, and I think it's, uh, I think they're wrong. I don't, I, but maybe they don't care that they're wrong. Maybe what is the long-term game that they're playing? I don't know. Anyway, maybe I shouldn't speculate on that. Let's talk about what you asked before. Um, again, we, we, we see these big giants. We see the big tech giants in both China and in, in the United States. And I would say that that might be the sign of sort of under-regulation because maybe that something just pops out that way. You know, we also have like these amazing universities in America, and, and, uh, but then we have this massive amount of people with no education. And we have this incredible number of, uh, of uh, you know, fake education. You know, the, Donald Trump got sued for it and yeah. then he settled right after he got elected, right? You know, we, people ripping off people that want to go to college, you know, and beauty colleges that are just entirely about taking money from the federal government and giving it to the college and, and bankrupting some students in the meantime, right? So, uh, so in this really under-regulated area, then you sometimes have super creative things happen that, that turn into really interesting uh, companies. But um, I don't think Europe should be too depressed about that, because like I said, They've had the world's largest economy. The eurozone, so economies are defined by currencies, and the eurozone has been the world's largest economy since 2007. Mm -hmm. So something is going right here. There's an awful lot of money. There's a lot of wealth, and that's actually one of the things that Google says when they say, "Oh, you think we're too big?" But look at all the companies in Europe, all these SMEs or whatever that are using our tools. You know, and there is. There's a huge amount of AI in Europe. It's just that none of it's like big household names or you know, or barely household names, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I know in Bath, my little town is like, the, I don't know if they currently are, but they were, the, it used to be the biggest company in the world for taking down phishing. They would figure out when people sent phishing emails, right? And it's just in Bath, it's in like three Georgian buildings. And I swear that they have like, like a third of their workforce are, are uh, interns from my university, you know? But you can do that. So there's a whole lot of these companies that are creating great value that they just don't have the household name, you know, because that's not what they need. That's not the, that's mm -hmm. not the way they do business. So... Um, but then kind of Europe took this stance of being at the forefront of trying to regulate and, you know, talk about data protection and privacy. There, Europe is the player. And well, you know, European Commission. Yeah, I think that's because Europe is is really leading. They they are actually thinking about how do you protect their citizens, and they are making a more robust system. I think, and I think that um, another really interesting thing that's happening is this new. I don't know what it's currently called, data lake or something, but that they've realized just like with GPS. And again, here's the thing: where you know, America did the system first, and they had all these satellites up, and then Europe kind of said oh, well, we should have a second system just in case something goes wrong with the first system, right? You know? yeah. <laughs> and, and right now you can think of more different ways that could go wrong, right? Uh -huh. But similarly, they're saying, oh, maybe we need to make up you know, this national. Now, this is really weird. Can you compete with Google in terms of having, you know, like, well, hyper-national, it's, it's the EU. But anyway, uh, sort of a, a publicly funded data uh, uh, set so that you can build the AI off of that. Now, some people think that China has this incredible advantage because they don't care about their citizens' privacy. Their citizens care about their citizens' privacy. It's interesting. They are doing things like covering up cameras and stuff. So the, the citizens aren't crazy about what's going on. Mm -hmm. but, the, um, but anyway, and, uh, I think the people who think that are 
forgetting like basic, you know, stats 101. When you first learn about statistics, you learn why you don't need to have a poll of every single citizen to know to predict an election, yeah. right? And um, so similarly, and this is one of the scary things, we used to talk about data hygiene, like people should learn how to like, you know, hide their information or something. But we can't even get people to wash their hands. And it's really important to, you know, hand, hygiene, hygiene, right? You know? yeah. Same thing with digital literacy. There are people who can't read, right? Yeah. And if you can't even read, you're not gonna have digital literacy. Or maybe, not all of it anyway. There, there's, there are some things that are easier depending on what your problem is with reading. But anyway, the point is, that um, the data that we have from the people who are willing to share it and don't care is sufficient that we can build really good models. And when you have a really good model, then you need hardly any data to make a prediction about a new person. And that was the whole thing with Cambridge Analytica that they said, oh, we got, we got I saw this recently with a video that was like, we got 200,000 um, people's data in America and now we have a model of every single adult. You know, because that was enough information from Facebook that they could pretty much figure out what the whole population was doing. Now, they may have been exaggerating because they're trying to raise money, but you can watch the video of the guy saying whatever those numbers were. I was just, I was just making up, I can't remember if it was 200,000, maybe but even fewer. But the point was that um, there was a mistake that Facebook made, which I hope, I don't see who's going to do it, but I would love to see them get like sued down to the ground for it. That, um, that was that, you know, around 2014, they just would, if you ask for someone's data, they say, oh, I'm interested in that kind of person, they would just hand you all the information about them and their friends, right? Whereas if you go to Google and you say, I'm interested in you know, this kind of person that might buy my car or whatever, they don't give you any individual information. They just say, oh yeah, we can find those people, give us your advertisement, we'll get it to them, right? So, so and it's not just about like Google being good and Facebook being bad, it's about, Google and like 70% of tech being good and Facebook and about 30% of, of tech yeah. being bad. And so we need someone to enforce and say, those of you guys that were doing the wrong thing with data, you know, maybe they should be penalized now for what they did five or 10 years ago. Or maybe we should just say, okay, now we know that's bad and anyone who's still doing that is in deep trouble, right? But either way, um, you need some kind of coherent political will and one of the problems right now is that we've kind of um, screwed up the coherence of our political will. <laughs> you know, that I feel that we're almost, I sometimes feel that we're in a sort of the third European war um, because, because we're dismantling each other's uh, infrastructure. Mm -hmm. But you know, not by dropping bombs, by, by doing these kinds of uh, you know, uh, psyops. And, the, um, and also by cyber attacks. And, and, uh, and, you know, it's not even like there's nobody's dying. People are dying um, because they're losing their healthcare systems or, you know, whatever the stress and, the, and, the, and you know, like you know, the people in, in Puerto Rico, you know, there's all kinds of ways that people are dying. So, but, but we aren't having our buildings blown up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But um, other than that, anyway, so, and of course, people aren't being forced to fight uh, on uh, each other, except for in Syria. Um, yeah, I don't know, there's probably a few other places. Yeah. But, um, but anyway, so I think that uh, I have once again forgotten what the question was. <laughs> That's right, no, you've, you've answered it a long time ago, so now, now I'm just uh, kind of uh, absorbing the bonus. Thank you very much, Joanna, thanks for your time, and uh, let's go enjoy the talk. Okay, great, and maybe uh, next year we can get that third question. Cool, definitely, <laughs> thank you very much. Sure. Yeah. 
Thank you very much, guys, for tuning in to this episode of Max Talks Air with Joanna Bryson. I really hope that you enjoyed the conversation and you picked up something that you didn't know. Certainly for me, uh, the conversation with Joanna was, in, was incredibly thought-provoking and uh, I learned a great bunch about not just artificial intelligence, but also some amazing perspectives on the way AI fits into the global economic landscape. Uh, to check out Joanna Bryson's work, and um, if you're interested in the academic kind of side of it, proper geeky <laughs> in a way, uh, then uh, you can just Google Joanna Bryson and a uh, few of the websites that pop up first are her research portal on the homepage of the Department of Computer Science of the University of Bath. So you can check out all the recent uh, publications there. Um, I would also suggest that you follow Joanna on Twitter, her Twitter handle is at J2Bryson. That's at J2Bryson. Now, before I let you guys get on with your day, I would strongly urge you to check out the collaboration platform for people who are interested in artificial intelligence. And the best place to go would be into.ai. I-N-T-O dot A-I. So if you're interested in AI, which if you're listening to this podcast, I'm guessing you are, uh, please go and check out this collaboration space. Also, if you want to promote your work that uh, concerns artificial intelligence, uh, that would be greatly appreciated. It is a not-for-profit website, and uh, its aim is really to kind of promote and raise awareness about artificial intelligence, which is what I'm also trying to do uh, as part of Max Talks AI podcast. Uh, so please, if you're interested, um, check it out, and then let me know if you have any questions. If you want to contact me, I am uh, Max O. Klimenko, that's M-A-X-O-K-L-Y-M-E-N-K-O, on uh, Instagram and Twitter, and uh, Max Klimenko on YouTube, and Max Talks AI on Facebook. Again, thanks very much for tuning in, and uh, until the next one, bye.